I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty-gritty so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... The Strange Story of Baywatch Nights. What was Baywatch Nights? Well, in 1995, after the meteoric rise of Baywatch, two producers decided to strike while the iron was hot. They put a spin-off show into development that centered on David Hasselhoff's Mitch Buchanan during his night job, which mostly took place during the day, as a private investigator. Only there was one problem. This program lacked all the swimsuits, busty blondes, and slow motion running that made its progenitor so successful. So what did they do to save the show from cancellation after a steep decline in ratings by the end of the first season? They pivoted it into a monster hunting show? I don't think Mitch Buchanan is why we're all here, but I could be wrong. Cast your mind back to the 1980s, the decade of excess, gloss, and utterly vapid entertainment. Sure, today we're living in a world that is dead set on reliving what we think the 80s was like, but the actual decade was shallowness, conservatism, and Reaganomics. That's the cultural soup that birthed either the greatest 80s TV show to only air for one season in the 80s, or the most cynical and cold-blooded maneuver in Hollywood history, Baywatch. The brainchild of Gregory Bonin, the future television creator mined his own life experience as a lifeguard. Bonin had the idea for the show centered on lifeguards after saving two children from drowning. Coincidentally, they happened to be MTM studio employee Stu Irwin's children. Why, yes. I'm happy to save your children. No problem, it's just my job. But also, if you want to give me a TV show... While that origin story is funny, and parts of it, while contested by other creatives who worked on the show, seem to be true, the alternative origin to everyone's favorite show is that established writers, after being scolded by their agent, got high, went to the beach, and witnessed a sea rescue. That's right, Michael Burke and Doug Schwartz were the two men that maybe, or maybe not, made Baywatch. ...because they did not understand a show about lifeguarding, because there's never been a show about lifeguarding before. They said, no, Beach Boys, who's going to watch people getting tans? How many different rescues can you do? Greg had just come back from the filming the Olympics as a documentary and had shot all those, those sprinters in slow motion and stuff. He still had his equipment, all his camera equipment that he hadn't turned in. And we edited it to Don Henley's Boys of Summer. For the promo, they cast their friend Mike Newman, a real lifeguard. It was the Southern California lifestyle with real lifeguards and the action adventure. It was the beach and beauty and the sunsets every night. And once they saw that, they got it. Grant Tinker, who was the president of NBC and, you know, Mary Tyler Moore and all this other stuff, he watched it. He goes, it's great. I get it. It's action packed. It's beautiful. But I don't think there's a series in it. So do a movie. But I want you to put panic in the title. So we wrote and shot Baywatch Panic at Malibu Pier. When it's time to shoot the movie, they recast. Mike Newman is demoted to a bit player, and the role of head lifeguard goes to this man. Here is David Hasselhoff. 
David Hasselhoff starred in Knight Rider. We also cast Billy Warlock, Erica Liniak. Erica had been in Playboy. NBC said, no, we won't cast her. We stood up for Erica Liniak, and they finally gave in. This out. All right, circle clockwise. Johnny, you all right? I forgot everything we learned. You remember when you hit the water? Not only was Panic at Malibu Pier successful, but it was the highest rated movie on NBC the entire year, and they greenlit the 22 episodes of Baywatch. After season one, Burke and Schwartz meet with the studio, expecting to be ordered back to the beach for a season two. What happened was uh, Grant Tinker, who was the chairman of GTG Entertainment, Grant said that NBC has decided to cancel the show. GTG, because they were so bad as a studio, went out of business. There was no one left to finance Baywatch. Baywatch is over. I have three things to say. Number one, I love that the executives, uh, that when they were pitching Baywatch, were like, I don't think there's a series here. It's just like lifeguards. Like that's what, how do you, how many like rescues can you have? Like what, there's no show. And then they just showed them women in bikinis running on high-speed cameras. And they were just like, oh, I get it. Green lit. Here's a million dollars. Also, while obviously even today uh, we still live in a relatively socially conservative time where certain things are still sort of taboo and looked down upon in ways that are not necessarily right it's so crazy that there was like there were like an actress who appeared in Playboy and they were like, we won't cast her in this show. And now like leaking a sex tape is like a veritable path to a being becoming the biggest celebrity in the fucking earth. That's that's so crazy. Um, but the last thing is uh, the, <laughs> I was thinking about this before we even started watching that clip. But Baywatch is one of those things where it's such a staple of. For a certain age group, people our age and and maybe a little bit older, maybe a little bit younger, it's such a cemented staple of pop culture that you don't think about it. And it's just like, yeah, Baywatch, that's just one of the fucking cornerstones of of uh, TV culture in the fucking 80s and 90s. But when you zoom out a little bit, it's a weird premise for a show. A bunch of lifeguards. Especially because they're not really lifeguards. They're all like private detectives who also are lifeguards. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a strange show that you would never in a million years think would work as a premise. But then you see the slow motion footage and you're like, oh, million dollars. Yeah, million dollars. Yeah. Baywatch debuted on NBC in 1989 and was canceled after only one season. Ultimately, Burke and Schwartz went to the head of the studio and bought the rights to the show back for $10. They then went to Hasselhoff and approached foreign financiers in order to find the money in order to sell the show directly into syndication. So what that means is they get, they do this movie, Panic at Malibu Pier. It's really successful. They do one season of a TV show. Nobody watches it or not enough people watch it. Then the network cancels the show. They're like, fuck it. We don't want to do it anymore. These two guys, Burke and Schwartz, who are the nephew and son of the guy who created Gilligan's Island. They go to the Gilligan's Island, homie, and are like, hey, how do we like do more of our show. They they canceled our show, but we, we think there's more here. We don't we don't think it's over. And he's like, oh, just like go see the dude, and maybe he'll like sell you the rights back. Which is like nepotism. <laughs> like that just doesn't happen. One one that doesn't happen, and two, 
it definitely doesn't happen now even more where they're just like there aren't reversion clauses in contracts anymore because studios want to hang on to everything in case something eventually becomes popular. Yeah, now now you have these these like really heartbreaking horror stories of people who have poured their fucking souls into creating this show and then it gets canceled or taken away from them and then it's just like it's either gone forever or they just have no control over it. And it's like this thing that you like, you know, it's your it's your fucking idea. But you, you know, you developed it with a with a network or something like that. And then you just have to walk away from it. And it's just not yours anymore. Uh, and it's stuff like, you know, I, I'm, there's probably countless examples of this. But the the two that are that come to mind uh, the, the, the quickest are Dan Harmon with Community, where he was fired from the show. And then they just got two different showrunners to take on the show. And it just continued on without him. He eventually came back and it was this whole weird thing, but there was a whole season of the show where it was like, yeah, this thing that's like you poured your life blo- life's blood into, it's just, we're just going to go on without you. Um, and then also more recently, uh, uh, Olin Rogers, uh, his show, Final Space, animated show on TBS, it got canceled before they ha- they were able to have a final season. So it just ends on a cliffhanger and just doesn't get to resolve any of its plot lines. And then they just, it's not available on DVD. It's not available to purchase anywhere. And it was on HBO Max. And then they just took it off of HBO Max. So now you literally can't watch the show. And Olin Rogers is just like, my fucking, I, I, my whole life for five years was this show. And now it doesn't exist anymore. Like it's, it's fucked up. It's super fucked. Um, and it's it's like more and more common now too that that's happening with all these streaming wars acquisitions and they they put out fucking the Willow TV show on Disney Plus like six months ago and they just took that off. Yeah, it's gone now. Crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, it's like a tax write off. Yeah. Um, but the thing that's really interesting here to me is that you know these guys nepotism obviously is a large component of it, but these two guys Burke and Schwartz they they're like no there's there's more to this. And if we partner with David Hasselhoff, who's a huge star in Germany, we can probably get the Germans to give us enough money to make it a credible discussion when we go to Spain and England and uh, wherever else for foreign licensing deals in order to get the money to make another season. Um, So, you know, he took a pay cut, but became an executive producer. Hasselhoff became an executive producer on um, uh, on. Uh, Baywatch and he took back end points and let's just say that worked out very well for him that worked out very well for him the show would run 11 seasons the two final years of which would be a soft reboot titled Baywatch Hawaii after the show had relocated there due to rising production costs in Los Angeles the show also launched three direct-to-dvd films Hawaiian Wedding White Thunder at Glacier Bay and Forbidden Paradise all three of those titles, they don't sound like real movies. Nope. I mean, neither neither does neither does Panic at Malibu. Like that sounds like a a made up fake. Yeah, White Thunder at Glacier Bay. I don't know what that means though. Like I I understand. Oh, there's a panic at a pier, and the pier is in Malibu. Great. Sure, I know what that means. Hawaii is a place. There's a wedding there. Okay, it's a Hawaii wedding. Forbidden Paradise? Oh, okay. What I don't understand is what the fuck White Thunder at Glacier Bay is. I don't know, but I'm, I want to be there. What Before we move on, what what is your experience with Baywatch? Like, I know we're talking about, we're going to be talking about Baywatch Nights. But what's what's your experience with Baywatch? What, you know, when was, 
Like, when did you first ever see it? Did you watch it when you were a kid? What, what was your exposure to it or your introduction to it? Uh, my first memory of Baywatch is being probably like six and being in my the living room at the in the house that I grew up at like late at night. I mean, or at least I thought it was late at night. I don't know if it actually was. It probably was like 5 p.m. But I was like, whoa, it's so late. And Baywatch was playing. And I remember seeing uh, not Pam Anderson, but the other blonde woman with with shorter blonde hair uh, running on a beach. And I remember being like, huh, a million dollars, a million dollars. Huh. Um, And I I never really liked the show. Uh, but I would watch it when it was on sometimes because like, you know, especially at that point in time in the 90s, like there wasn't much on fucking TV. So when there was something you were like, whoa, people are shooting guns. Wow, this is so exciting. Um, but no, I, I can't say I ever really liked the show. I thought Pamela Anderson was cute and I was like, ooh, she's pretty. That's about it. That's that's, that's my that's my uh, kind of exposure to it was very passing and glancing. Yours? Yeah, that's it's about the same. Like basically, there was there was like a handful of shows that were like the shows that my mom always watched. So I just have like the the memory or the or the exposure or the formative exposure of like these shows would just be on every week, and you either just kind of like see them on the TV when you're walking by. Or sometimes you actually sit and watch them with your parents. And it was like Beverly Hills 90210, Melrose Place, Party of Five, ER, Friends, and Baywatch. Yeah, I feel like there's, I feel like there's, I was a weird little kid. So like these adult kind of like procedurals or adult dramas, I always liked the weird ones. Like, did you ever watch Pensacola Wings of Gold? Uh, Yes. I, I don't know why, but I loved Pensacola Wings of Gold. Like I was like eight or ten or something, and I was just like, yeah, Robert Forrester, this fucking rules. Same thing with Jag. I was probably like 11, and I was just like, Jag is the fucking best, bro. Yeah, I never, I never, I never really liked Jag. I, I mean, I, I definitely was aware of it. I was more of a Murder, She Wrote, Matlock kind of guy. I also loved Murder, She Wrote, and Matlock, but I was, uh, I was more, uh, those, as far as those detective things go, I was more, uh, what the fuck is that show called? Uh, Columbo. I was thinking of Columbo and also, which I know you love Columbo as well, and um, uh, Kojak. I loved Kojak. Yeah. Um, who loves you, baby? Blofeld, man. He's in this He's in this TV show. In my head, canonically, Ko- Kojak is just Blofeld in hiding. Um, uh, yeah, no, but I mean, it, it, to me, the, the, the thing that was always kind of interesting about Baywatch when it was happening is more its cultural ubiquity than the actual show. Like it was it's so fascinating that it was just everywhere, you know, and that it kind of made stars out of people who didn't really deserve to be stars. No offense to Pam Anderson, but like. She doesn't have like the star charisma or qual acting chops or just even like a magnetic personality. She really is like a model that is saying words. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's not to say like, oh, like she it's not to say like, oh, she doesn't deserve to be a star in any kind of moral sense. But it's just like in any other normal circumstance, you would never become this famous. Yes. A hundred percent. Yeah. But that was kind of like that was kind of the power of of thing. Uh, that was the power of not specific movies, but just like that was the power of celebrity real estate in the 80s and 90s that doesn't exist anymore. 
Like you could be on one specific show and resonate in a particular way with people and then you would just be set for life. And people would just go to see a movie because Pamela Anderson was in it. As opposed to now, there's like, there's no um, traction like that. Like Robert Downey Jr. became like the biggest movie star in the fucking world for a decade playing Tony Stark. And then he left and did another movie and like nobody gave a shit. He did it. He did that. He did that that lawyer movie while he was Tony Stark and nobody went to go see it. And it was written by the guy who made Mad Men nothing they're just like mm, that's not a tony stark no thanks yeah and it's, it's the same it's like the same for all those marvel people like chris evans once again one of the biggest movie stars in the world for a while now it's just like who the fuck is chris evans i don't even, I don't even remember his face what did he look like i have no idea you know I, i'm always curious about people in those positions because i feel like when you're when you are a big star like that and you have this kind of like weight to throw around the instinct that most of those people and their teams kind of congeal around is like, oh, we need to make vehicles for you. And it seems like it's very rare when there's a filmmaker that has a real vision for a project and then the star kind of comes in in order to push that vision through. Like you saw that with um, Rob Pattinson. Like that's that's one of the things I respect that guy most for is like he would just like go to film festivals and like keep track of weird indie filmmakers and then like himself approach them and be like hey i really like your weird art house movies do you want to write a movie for me to be in or do you have a movie that i could be in like it's so cool and i know this is i obviously i would never be that type of leading man actor but if i was in those those people's places i'd be like okay let's get phil Tippett on the phone let's get fucking david cronenberg let's get all these weird independent modern people let's call joe bigos let's call you know what i mean like let's call weirdo people and like i just want to be in their movies to get cool weird shit happening you know what i mean yeah that <laughs> those little epiphanies always like really strike me because i think i just think like not that this is particularly obscure, but I'll just see stuff like I'll see I'll see John Leguizamo talking on some interview about how like nobody wants to cast him anymore and he can't get work and all this stuff. It was them talking about casting Tom Holland as Zorro. I think I, I think I sent this to you. And then he was talking about that and he was just being and he was just saying like it's hard enough for like Latino actors to get work. And then you're just talking about like casting a white guy and like a very traditionally Latino role. And he was talking about how he couldn't get work anymore. And, and like, and I was just thinking like, man, like if I had any power influence, I would cast John Leguizamo in everything I ever made. I love that guy. Like, I, like, I, and it's, it's, it's not about John Leguizamo specifically, but there's so many people like that where I'm just like, I would put this person in everything. They're great. How are they, how, why does nobody else feel like this? Like I watched, I watched the Little Richard documentary the other day, and there's a whole part in it where like he never got a, a Grammy or any kind of music awards, and then he was like, he he was selected to present an award at the Grammys one time in in the 80s or maybe it was the 90s, and then he like went off book and was like, the winner is me because you never gave me shit or whatever, and he just like he did this like little rant that was joking. It wasn't like a real awkward thing but he was you know it was serious or whatever and i was just like i would give little richard every grammy in the world he would get all the grammys if it was up to me how did he never win a single grammy and uh you know he wouldn't be little richard anymore he'd be big richard because he'd be standing on all those grammys yeah uh, and that, that's that's really at the end of the day you got to think about things in that perspective because nobody nobody wants big richard 
And it's funny because that's kind of what happened here. It's kind of what happened here with Hasselhoff, right? Where he was like this big star, this big TV star. And he was like, yeah, I will take a pay cut in order to push this thing forward because I think there's more here. I think there's a bigger idea here. Granted, not probably what I would choose to put my weight behind. But objectively, he won out, man. He made millions. 11 seasons, baby. 11 fucking seasons as an executive producer and star and a spinoff series, which we're going to talk about soon. But while all the success is impressive, that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're going to be discussing the bizarre, short-lived, and frankly terrible show, Baywatch Nights. I know what you're thinking. A lifeguard that also just happens to be a private detective? That's like really dumb and makes no sense. Baywatch Nights ran from 1995 to 1997 and was created by the previously mentioned Doug Schwartz, David Hasselhoff, and Gregory J. Bonin. Here is the wiki summary of the show. The original premise of the series was that during a midlife crisis, Sergeant Garner Ellerby, Gregory Allen Williams, who was the resident police officer of Baywatch since the beginning of the series, decides to quit his job as a police officer and form a detective agency. Mitch Buchanan, David Hasselhoff, his friend from Baywatch, joins to support him, and they are in turn joined by a detective named Ryan McBride, Angie Harmon. Singer Lou Rawls, who starred in the first season, performed the series theme song, After the Sun Goes Down, alongside David Hasselhoff. Rawls played the role of Lou Raymond, owner of the nightclub where the detective agency rents its office. Midway into the first season, the series added two new cast members, Eddie Cibrian and Donna D'Erico. This this has been like a pet topic for me for a long time. I love weird spinoffs. I love failed pilots that didn't manifest series. I love any kind of like strange big swing that doesn't really make sense in the in you know the brand strategy of an IP or something along those lines. I love that shit. And this is maybe the biggest and weirdest version of that where Baywatch is the biggest show on the planet. They're like, we got to get a spinoff. Okay, we're going to get Hasselhoff in. He's going to be a fucking private detective with these other characters. It's going to be awesome. And I I was, before we started decided to do this episode, I was only kind of familiar with Baywatch Nights as I'm aware of the story that the, it's a spinoff of Baywatch that then in the second season pivoted into being something completely different and failed. So I had not actually seen Baywatch Nights before starting this episode. And I watched seven episodes of Baywatch Nights. Dear God, that show sucks. Like, it, it feels like a parody of 90s network TV shows. It's so bad. It's so bland. And frankly, the reason everyone shows up for Baywatch is not here. Yeah, well, that's the thing is, like, I don't even know if this is the appropriate time to talk about this, but... Baywatch Nights might be the biggest and most consequential heat check in all of celebrity history because you got a guy, David Hasselhoff, who is on Knight Rider, which is like somewhat of a cult TV show. It's like it's not like super cult, but it it wasn't like this massive smash hit. It was like a thing that was like a people of the time. It was a cultural it was in the cultural zeitgeist. And now it's like a nostalgic nostalgic thing that we all kind of think back on. And he his career didn't really go anywhere. And then he got really popular as a musician in Germany specifically. And then this whole thing with Baywatch happened. And it was like, okay, so there's clearly something with this guy. Because he hasn't become this smash breakthrough star in the States yet. But he keeps wriggling his way into things. 
he you know he has he had Knight Rider. He became big in Germany with his music. Maybe maybe there's something to this guy. He does Baywatch. It blows up and gets massively successful. Baywatch Nights is like is the heat check. It's like what is it because of this guy? Is Baywatch so popular because of David Hasselhoff? Is he gonna go off and become the next Tom Cruise or whatever? And then it was like, nope, not at all. And then David Hasselhoff just went away. <laughs> he was just gone. It's, But no, it's not even just like, oh, David Hasselhoff's star power can't sustain a show that really shouldn't exist without like some TNA. It's also that every script, it's got like William Shatner syndrome where every script is tailored to only feature Mitch. There's three other characters in the show, two of whom are his partners, and Ryan, the woman, the woman that Angie Harmon plays, Ryan McBride has 10 times the amount of charisma that fucking David Hasselhoff has. No offense, Hoff, but like she would make a better fucking Nick Fury than you do. And like every episode, the other characters are immediately sidelined and Mitch Buchanan saves everybody, solves the mystery, helps the kid out of a tree, stops the abusive husband, whatever it is. And there's one episode specifically where they actually give Ryan stuff to do. She has to go into a building. I think it's episode like eight or nine. Uh, she has to go into a building and interview somebody who may be the murderer. And she goes into this guy's house and he pushes her out a window and she's dangling from a scaffolding. And this only happens so that Mitch Buchanan can show up, scale the scaffolding and carry her down. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. They give everything to him nothing to anyone else even though the other character the um the the ellerby guy it's like it's his detective agency that's failing like it's sh the plots should center around him he's the one that's in debt but they're just like oh yeah you know people just want to see david hasselhoff right so just give everything to hoff and it's also doubly weird that every mystery happens on the beach because their detective agency is on the beach so it's like film noir plots, but where everyone's wearing like flip flops and suntan lotion, but not in a sexy way. It's it's not the thing from Baywatch where it's like, oh, let me save you from drowning. Heaving bosom, heaving bosom, heaving. Bo it's just like people walking down the Santa Monica Pier being like, man, it's kind of hot out here. Are you selling drugs? Like there's literally there's literally one of the plots where there's an older man who like conscripts a bunch of little kids to form like a rollerblading distrib drug distribution ring. And like they have to like figure out how these kids are being abused. <laughs> it's so fucking stupid. It's also just too similar to Magnum P.I. Like we already have a sexy beach themed detective show featuring a barrel chested daddy. Yes, 100 percent. And Tom Selleck, I'm sorry. I'm choosing Tom Selleck over the Hoff. Oh, he he trounces the Hoff. Yeah. Again, Tom Selleck, better Nick Fury than David Hasselhoff. I'm sorry, Hoff. Tom Selleck has more sex appeal, charisma, and star power in his fucking mustache than David Hasselhoff has. Look, all I'm saying is this Quigley, he's trying to go down under. <laughs> this Mr. Baseball, uh, there's no more. That was the whole title. Look, I'm just saying this Blues was that the name of his like FBI show? Was it called Blues? I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm so look. This guy who was almost Indiana Jones is trying to go get my arc rated. You know what I'm saying? Um, but yeah, the first season is super brutal. It's not good. It's really not good. 
but it's also kind of comforting in how bad it is. Like I kind of got into a rhythm while I was watching those episodes where I was just like, this is trash and I love it, but I wish it was just like, like, I wish it just had like 5% more personality. It's, it's greatest sin is that it's just so bland. And that's the thing that's so great, I guess. That's the thing that you could say is so great about Baywatch is that it has personality. It has style, it has panache. It has, you know, it's you're there for what it's selling or you really aren't. You could sit through an entire episode of Baywatch Nights and be like, yeah, I don't know. Should we maybe watch another? That doesn't happen with Baywatch. You're either like, yeah, or like, oh, clutching my pearls. This is too risque for me. Which is, that was what I was like. Makes sense. So for the second season, facing slipping ratings, which were never as good as the original series, the producers decided to switch to a science fiction format, inspired by the success of Fox's program, The X-Files. Gregory Allen Williams left the series and was replaced by Dorian Gregory as Diamond Teague. I don't even remember that character's name. Why that? Why that name? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember that character by name. I remember him as like, oh yeah, that's the paranormal guy that comes in. Could not tell you that character's name, um, but he's the paranormal expert. The new format did not help the series and it was canceled after the second season. The character Donna Marco was later carried over to the original Baywatch after the series ended. There's like four crossover episodes where people from Baywatch Prime show up in Baywatch Nights, which is kind of funny. But the specifics of... Baywatch Nights being rebooted as an X-Files clone is so weird because they do it in the most abrupt way. There's not a story reason. It's just a different show starting in the second season. Oh, this is the, is this the ending theme? Yeah, I just wanted to... It's a good ending ending theme, right? This is the ending theme of season one. The episodes end with this song. It's all right. The devil is watching as we slide into the night. Into the night, baby. So those, that's the ending theme song for season one. Here, before, as we're getting into the second season and what you're saying about it, about what you're saying about it, let's just, before we get into that, let's hear... The perspective of Samantha Patrick, who is the commenter on this YouTube video. I like how on season two of Baywatch Nights, the agency started investigating the more spooky cases. I thought it was pretty cool because on Baywatch the series, there were some episodes that had some spooky episodes. The one that stuck out for me was when Eddie and his partner tried saving someone, but Eddie's partner drowned and they thought it might have been a ghost legend. I think it's been quite a while since I've watched them, but it's always been an episode that stuck out for me. So she liked the spooky season. But the... But the... The, the season two reboot, it's not like a story thing where it's like, oh, there's hell mouths opening all up all over Santa Monica or Malibu or whatever. It's just like, and now we're going to be an X-Files show. Buckle up, bitches. Ah! This is David Hasselhoff walking through a spooky graveyard, basically spooky graveyard. <laughs> Candles. Candelabras. A gargoyles. Gargoyle. This stuff isn't in LA. He's running towards camera, holding a flashlight in a recreation of the X-Files. Wolf taxidermies. The forest. 
This is not California. A werewolf claw, a crucifix, a dog. They, we keep cutting back to him walking through smoke towards camera in slow motion. No more smiling, no more shirt off. He's got a shirt on and he's pouting. And he's scowling because he's dealing with spooky shit now. Did you hear what the, the voiceover says there? <laughs> the nights will never be the, the same. The nights will never be the same, bro. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about this is it's like conceptually, this should be the greatest thing ever. Yeah. And what I mean by that is I think about this all the time and I love stuff like this. And I wish that more things did this, which is that the idea that there would be like multiple things that exist in the same universe that are all just completely different genres. The idea that there was like a bright, bubbly um, lifeguard drama. And then in the same universe, there's like this noir tinged uh, nighttime detective procedural. And then within the universe of the, both of those shows, like like you were saying before, like a hell mouth opens and then suddenly there starts being like spooky paranormal shit. That sounds amazing. Yeah, the problem the problem is it's not that though. The problem is it's just like I don't know, Craven Cash Grab, what if we did the X-Files? Yeah. But with without that connective tissue of them coming up with a reason for why it happens, that's just the weirdest fucking thing ever. That they're just like, yeah, it's just it's just like spooky paranormal stuff now. Um yeah. Yeah. Uh but the thing that's even weirder about it is that it it's kind of like a half measures. Like that intro makes it seem like it's like, oh, we're fully going to do Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Without you even telling me, I fully expect that the actual show is just nothing like that intro and it's just totally misleading. It's not not that. Like it is definitely spooky and there's like ghosts and stuff. But it's not what you want it to be. It's not Buffy. Like, if this was just Buffy levels of like, oh, yeah, there's vampires and werewolves and like, you know, the classic monster tropes and all that stuff. It's kind of that, but not really. So let's let's read some of these, the you know, these um, one line descriptions from this article uh, that I read specifically about this, uh, you know, the, this transition. Um, and we're going to we're going to read first. We're going to read some episode synopses from season one that I've put in here from that article. All right. So from season one, Bad Blades, a cosmetic mogul asks Mitch, Garner and Ryan to investigate her son's involvement with a gang of roller skating burglars. Yeah. OK. Low stakes. All right. OK. Roller skating burglars, modern day Fagan and his and his uh, and his army of of street urchins. Deadly vision. Destiny has a vision of Ryan being the next victim of a serial killer that Mitch and Garner are looking for. Uh, really bad. Destiny, I believe, is the character that's their like kooky comic relief who works as their office assistant. And she like files everything incorrectly and like lives in her own world and like believes in tarot card reading and all that kind of stuff. 
the the attempts at comedy with her character are so painful. Okay, so I have not read the third one. I have not read the actual description, but I already know what it's about. So I, so I, I'm not reading the I'm not reading the description yet. The title of the episode is kind of a drag, and it's about like a crossdresser or something. I have not read the description. Mitch goes undercover as a female impersonator to catch the culprits who've been assaulting members of a drag show company. Yep. <laughs> So that that's the level of comedy and hijinks that we're dealing with in season one. Season two, here's some high concepts. Terror from the deep. Mitch and Griff investigate a sunken freighter that a woman claims was sunk by a New Guinea sea monster. Do we actually get to see a sea monster? Uh, we see tentacles in that one, I think, but I don't think it's ever confirmed what it is. The creature. Mitch, Griff, and Ryan investigate a series of murders committed by a half-human, half-fish woman intent on having a baby. Freddy? <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, we got we just got a couple more below this photo. The rig. Mitch and Ryan head to an oil rig where they encounter a gelatinous sea monster. There's a lot of sea. They went sea monster heavy on this. They went sea monster heavy, dude. They were like, we got a beach. I guess that's what we got. They're all sea monsters. They're, they're like in the writer's room. They're like, all right. So what if uh, what if Mitch uh, fights a sea monster? Great, great, great. All right. Sounds great. Um, another episode. We got we to crank these things out. We got to go. We're, we're on a schedule here. Okay, so then uh, maybe Mitch is um, investigating a crime. It's a serial killer. And then he learns that it's like a sea monster. Okay, okay. Another sea monster. Uh, That's, I mean, I love it. Let's write it down. Like, who really cares at the end of the day? But like, maybe let's like move away from the sea monster thing and like do a little bit more than that. Like go outside of the sea monster genre. Okay, so uh, Mitch is... Uh, he gets sick and he's bedridden. He's stuck inside of his house all day. He starts looking out of his window and he's like spying on his neighbors with binoculars. And he starts noticing that there's like nefarious things going on around him. And at, su- at some point he realizes that one of his neighbors is a sea monster. Okay, so aside from the fact that that was just the plot of Rear Window, you did another sea monster. I'm starting to think that like maybe you don't know any other monsters besides like... Say, say a monster, sea monster, okay? Say any other monster. The, a monster that lives in the water? Loch Ness monster? Mermaid? Champy, the, the creature that lives in Lake Champlain. Okay, um, under any other circumstance, I would fire you on the spot, but fuck it, we just need to get this done. We're making, the whole thing is gonna be sea monsters all the way down. The Mobius. An old school friend of Ryan's shows her and Mitch a laser that transports them to a parallel universe where everything is a sea monster. Everything is a fucking sea monster, bro. The eighth seal. Mitch is possessed by a demon that needs a sacrifice to solidify its base of power on Earth. So this is the best part of this story to me. This whole season happened because Schwartz and the other producer, who I can't think of his last name now, were trying to save face. They didn't want... Oh, Burke. Burke and Schwartz were trying to save face because they didn't want the gravy train that was the just money behemoth of Baywatch. They didn't want that branding to be impacted by the cancellation of a spinoff after only one season. So they paid to have a second season made in the hopes that it would catch on and they could save face, which is so baller that they're just like... Fuck it. Let's spend like a bunch of millions of dollars 
just to make sure we don't fucking tank the other thing. And then they could and then they could have the plausible deniability and be like, listen, the reason why Baywatch Nights got canceled is because people weren't ready for sea monsters. They just weren't ready for those sea monsters. But I, I'm telling you, in like 10 years, we're going to see there's going to be a movie with like a fucking like I, for some reason, I'm just thinking of Johnny Depp now. He's going to be a pirate. He's going to go on to a pirate ship. There's going to be like a fucking squid guy with a pipe. He's going to be played by Bill Nye. People are going to eat that shit up. And you're going to know that I was right and that people will one day embrace the sea monster. It's like that Shane Black thing with the spider with a human head. Eventually, there's going to be one day where everybody culturally is just going to say release the Kraken for like four years. And you'll see. It'll never be said after that. But yeah, for those four years, man, everyone's just going to be like, release the Kraken. And then and then out of nowhere, after that phrase has just completely lost relevance for like seven years or more, there's going to be this crazy lawyer who's going to launch this campaign trying to prove that a president who is a famous reality TV show star was had his election stolen from him and she's going to name it release the kraken and people are going to be like really release the kraken like what is this 2008 so ultimately the show goes off the air it only lasts these two seasons baywatch nights the horror stuff sucks just as bad as the Baywatch Nights, the non-horror stuff. It's a little bit more interesting because it's like, at least there's some vague genre stuff to it. But frankly, it's still really fucking painful. Um, yeah, it's one of those It's one of those premises. And you, you get like, you get used to this ab- abusive relationship whenever you're into stuff like this. Where like I said before, you describing it, it sounds amazing. But at the same time, I, without you even telling me, I know intuitively that it's either the best thing ever or it's unwatchable. Tragically, it's unwatchable. Tragically. Yeah. Um... So, you know, the the two shows were on at the same time during the mid-90s. This one ends. But ultimately, Hasselhoff did fine because he was still on Baywatch Prime. They did 11 seasons, the reboot, soft reboot in Hawaii, and then two seasons or uh, three movies afterwards. So not only is he fine from his recording money and his Baywatch or uh, Knight Rider money, but he's definitely fine from the Baywatch situation. You know, he, he did OK. So don't mourn for for David Hasselhoff. Uh, but it 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 is kind of curious though, like you know, when I was doing all of this, you know, compiling all this bullshit for this episode, I was like, I wonder, I wonder what David Hasselhoff thinks, like in private. Like, does he like Baywatch? You have to, right? If you spend that many of your amount of your years making something, you you you're like, yeah, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, uh, it's good, it's good. Um, yeah, I I mean, I, I definitely think it's some flavor of that. I think that with people like David Hasselhoff. David Hasselhoff is somebody who's supposed to be a huge leading man. Like that's what in his bones he feels like he should have been. Like he's he's like a main character in his mind. Like there's certain people who are just like, yeah, I'm a I'm a character actor. Like that's what I'm I, my job is to, to support. And then there are people, whether they actually are or not, whether whether or not they have the talent or the luck to fall into it. They're supposed to be big leading leading men type or leading actor type, but he's not. And I think that and I think that with people like him and you kind of see it, that that um, that feeling of somebody who is thinks that they were supposed to be something and then they just didn't. And like 
the the debilitating disappointment that comes along with that that is unique to somebody who to them it it was a foregone conclusion that they were going to be this huge movie star and then they just weren't and i think that with somebody like that you have to go into a mode where you center yourself in all things to compensate for the fact that you are not as centered as you thought you should have been and to somebody like that, they take everything that they've ever done and they genuinely are convinced that everything is good. So I, I, I think he probably thinks that it's the greatest show ever. Yeah, I mean, I think you're probably right, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I think you're probably right. Um, but let's hear let's hear some in as a closing thought. Let's hear a quote from David Hasselhoff uh, in his own words. It was meant to be like I Spy with Robert Culp and Bill Cosby, where we explore the relationships between the leads and their and, and celebrate their camaraderie. The Hoff told the Bristol Bad Film Club in 2015, just right before all this Bill Cosby shit happened, which would immediately date this statement. The ratings were actually rather good, but while a nine share might be huge today, it wasn't good enough to stay on the air. We had a really good cast, and it's one of the biggest disappointments of my life that we weren't allowed to create what we wanted to make. It would have worked if they had left us alone, but everyone was worried about what we would sell, as due to the marginal ratings at the, at the beginning, we never got a chance to develop it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I watched the, I watched a lot of those season one episodes, and frankly, the idea that he's like, yeah, it's like a team. We're all going to celebrate the camaraderie. It's like, mm, I don't know, man. That show feels like... It's got the air of Shatner all over it, where it's just like you can feel the primary star's ego being like, this scene actually would make more sense if my character did it. Um, but who knows? Maybe he was different behind the scenes. Um, I don't know. I think my closing thoughts on Baywatch Nights are sometimes there are these fabled stories in Hollywood that are kind of like um, fascinating, you know, near misses or mo best movies that never got made or... You know, these these uh, geniuses who were overlooked and they really just, you know, they never got their day in the sun or, you know, even people like uh, Terry Gilliam or Orson Welles, who definitely, excuse me, definitely got their day in the sun, but just had so many problems getting their vision on screen and had these long, laborious processes of trying to achieve these Herculean artistic feats. You know, the, the burden of dreams, as Werner Herzog calls it. This is the opposite of that. This is this is such a weird story that should be really fun and just isn't at any turn because every decision is motivated by a single primary instinct greed. Yeah. And that's that's really what it is at the end of the day. It's on paper. It sounds amazing, but it's not from the perspective of somebody who just really had this strange vision for a very odd approach to telling a story. And they just like were they they were in the corner of that idea and just championing it, championing it every step of the way to just push through this strange idea about a spinoff of a very popular lifeguard show that takes one of the characters and makes them a paranormal detective. Instead of that, it's just like cynical business guys trying to like fill in every angle they can find to just keep going like sharks in the water, basically. I'm not going to lie, though. Even how bad it is, both versions, the fucking, you know, X-Files version and the standard version, Angie Harmon rules. Like every scene she's in, I'm just like, man, you have so much charisma. Why, these other people don't even need to be here. Let's just give you the... I know she got hired because she's a very beautiful person, but she has so much just like 
raw, untapped potential in this show. And I'm so glad that she went on to be in other stuff because she's great in this show. And she's like the she's the only thing in this show that really works, which is so funny that they don't give her anything to do. So depressing. Here's the thing. You can't hassle the Hoff. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. This has been Deep Cuts. You can find me online at heydavebaker.com. Spandrew, where can they find you? You can find me starring in the newly rebooted version of Bacon and Legs Miami Nights, where I stand in for our dear beloved Papa Pricey, a show that is in no way inspired by anything that came before it. Its title is not a reference to anything that's ever been made. And you can also not find me on social media because I don't use social media. But if you want to pay your respects to the dear beloved Papa Pricey, other than tuning into the newly rebooted Bacon and Legs Miami Nights that is the first of its kind and not in any way hearkening back to anything that came before it. You can go to his website, dapricerights.com, where you can pick up his book, Deadbolt, AI Private Eye. Completely random, and I don't expect anybody listening to this to take me up on this, but also if you go to dapricerights.com, you can also buy a custom 3D printed and hand-soldered DIY portable synthesizer that he made in bulk before he died, I guess. I guess that's the explanation for it, uh, which which has, which has he has started to sell. And if for whatever reason you're a listener and you're into like DIY uh, music and synthesizers and stuff, you can check it out. Um, uh, you can follow us on social media. Go to Facebook, search Deep Cuts Podcast. You can join our Facebook group, the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. We talk about the show and make memes and other stuff. You can join our Discord server, bitly.com slash Discord, where we talk about the show, make memes, play games, talk about other things. Um, just had a very in-depth discussion about cartoons from the early 2000s yesterday. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at DeepCutsPod. You can follow us on TikTok at Mystery Treehouse. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content.